0: .NET Rocks episode 646 with guest Jonathan Snook. Recorded live Monday, February 21st, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik. And by Franklin's.NET, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis. And SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Canada and the Ignite Your Coding podcast series on web development. Finding the time to keep your skills current can be a challenge, especially in the world of web development. That's why the folks at Microsoft Canada felt it was a good idea to connect you with industry experts to discuss topics on web development. As part of this four-part series known as Ignite Your Coding, you'll hear about HTML5, CSS, JavaScript, and Microsoft's work around interoperability through web standards. For more information about this episode, as well as other episodes of the Ignite Your Coding podcast series, check out MSDN.microsoft.ca/ignite. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very
1: much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, it's .NET, it's an hour, and uh, here we are. Oh, it's a good hour. Oh, it's a great hour. It's a finely (laughs) spent hour. I tell you, man, I have been having so much fun lately. I'm never happier when I'm doing two things,
2: making music and writing code. There you go. And you've been doing lots of both. Both. Yes. Yeah, you're in a happy place. I'm. Af- I'm afraid I'm a hardware guy. I'm awful happy when I'm knee deep in hardware. Absolutely. Although, didn't I send you a message today when I was sorting out scheduling, saying, "Hey, I really enjoy my job. I don't know what's wrong with me."
1: <laughs> but- and and uh, tell us about the little software mishap you had this morning, which was really funny. We were on the phone, and you know, nothing is more frustrating than when software is dumb, or when programmers write dumb software. So what was, it, what was it that you were scanning a document with some stupid program, and oh. it said, thank you, it's all done, and you couldn't find the file? Yeah, that,
2: like, I, just that classic, okay, where'd you put it? There. Right.
1: It's like, oh, Sparky. don't worry, we took care of everything. You don't need to know that. Yeah, we're all done. We're all done. <laughs> Where's the scan, Sparky? Show it
2: to me. <laughs> Eventually, I found it. It was named very creatively 1.jpeg yeah. in my documents.
1: Of course. And that's where I would start. <laughs> if I was going to look through the alphabet, I'd start with one, you know? <laughs> you just sort it alphabetically. It's right there. What's the matter with you? It could have been a GUID. So anyway, um, no, I've, I had fun. I, I unleashed a file uploader on Richard this morning, which um, I stayed up all night pretty much last night writing. I had I had part of it for the, the file upload part, which uses a web service, by the way, yes. to upload files in chunks over HTTP. Which is great because, you know, at the studio, we're always receiving a lot of files from people in the field. Yeah. And sometimes FTP doesn't work, Microsoft. So if you're behind a firewall, Microsoft, for example, you know, and those ports aren't enabled, Microsoft, you're going to have a problem with FTP.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and well, and the big thing is sometimes it fails and it doesn't recover yeah. properly and partial files can be left behind and uh. So I
1: made this drag and drop thing where it's an out of browser program in Silverlight 4 and you just drop files on it. It's got a little authentication. So, you know, it knows where it's going to save the files. And then you just hit a button and it fills up the screen with progress bars. And one after another, they just go up and up and up and you're done. Yeah. It was really fun. Anyway, let's get on to better know framework and I'll tell you about a little piece that I discovered during this development. <laughs> all right what do you got all right so i had this library to do sha1 uh hashing now sha1 is a is a hashing algorithm uh or protocol whatever you want to call it that uh, a hash is a one-way encryption so you put data in and you get out a hash code there's no way to reverse engineer that hash back into the data right it's a one-way hash Right. Now, why is this important, you say? Well, what's cool is I can take passwords, and I can encrypt them, the hash and store the hash in the database. Right. And then when somebody sends me their password, I I hash encrypt it, and then I just compare that hash to the one that's in the database, because guess what? It's going to be the same every time. So um, that way, I'm also not liable for storing passwords. If my server gets hacked, good luck. You're not going to find the password. It's a there. hash, right? So, um, so what I've what I figured out is the code that I had for Windows forms wasn't working in Silverlight, and it's just because of the way that I had written it. And I found a way to do this, uh, and I wrote a little compute hash function, which I wrote in VB.NET and C sharp, and it's five lines of code. And you can find it at .netrocks.com slash BKAF, for better know a framework, SHA1.txt. And just copy it right off the screen, paste it into your project. It'll work in uh, Silverlight. It'll work in WPF. It'll work in Windows Forms, I think. I didn't try it in Windows Forms. But it'll also work in ASP.NET. So it's got to work in Windows Forms, too. Nice. So the reason that I needed that is I needed the same code to run in the Silverlight app as on the in the web service so that i could compare right makes sense yeah gotta run everywhere dot nerox.com slash b-k-a-f-s-h-a-1 dot text
2: if you need it it's right there richard somebody talking to us today you bet i got an email here uh let me just read you carl and richard thank you thank you for having udi dehan on to talk about cqrs I have done a bit of reading on the pattern in the past and even attended a few of Udi's talks at TechEd and the Philly Code Camp. And you guys have echoed the questions that I have wanted to ask after reviewing and working through some of these complex concepts with my current project. Special thanks to Richard for bringing up the Greenfield versus Brownfield application point 33 minutes into the recording. Yeah. I've been confronting exactly that problem in my discussions and designs of implementing this pattern in my organization's rapidly growing application. Hey, man, we're always thinking about you. We're thinking about you. I've previously recommended my colleagues listen to .NET Rocks, and this episode, particularly that discussion, was a highlight I had to pass on. So thanks again, guys. And Richard, keep up the good barbecue. And that's from Jeffrey Fritz. And uh, I met Jeff at TechEd Atlanta, and I think we geeked out on barbecue for like an hour. Oh, man. You know how that just sort of happens? And then you didn't you realize you've drawn an audience to talk about cooking meat? Speaking of that, you, we've been asked by
1: uh, Don Williamson of Grape City to contribute recipes to some cookbook that he's
2: putting out. Yeah, he wants to do a geek cookbook. Isn't that sick? And I was going to do my rib recipe, and then I realized Dawn's got a rib recipe, and I don't want to compete with him. So I think maybe I'll switch to paella or something. So it's crazy.
1: Richard and I now are you know, putting in celebrity recipes <laughs> for the
2: .NET crowd. I think I'll have to you, – you you, hit on something, which is the key is to video yeah. cooking the dish.
1: Yeah. So I'm moving into a new house that has a kitchen that looks like a, the set of a cooking show. Nice. So I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to make a video. Yeah. That'll be fun. And uh, before we introduce Jonathan, um, we just need to have a little shout out to Microsoft Canada. That this is a very special edition of .NET Rocks for the IYC series, Ignite Your Coding. That uh, that we're doing, Richard. You want to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Um, I've been involved in Ignite Your Coding for the past few years, but generally they're panel discussions. Uh, this time around, we sat and talked about how to engage developers to think about going further with their careers. This idea of doing, at this particular time with IE9 about the ship mm. and HTML5 being so important, just the whole web launching to a new level, mm-hmm. uh, the focus of the series is going to be on web technology. And so we've done a few shows already. We're going to do a few more. And this is certainly one of them. And so. you can
1: check them all out at msdn.microsoft.ca slash ignite. That C-A as in Canadia. That you're happy neighbors to the north. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Another word for happy. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, introduce our, our very special guest today, Jonathan Snook. Jonathan is a designer and developer who's worked for agencies, worked freelance, and is now working as lead prototyper for Yahoo. He shares tips, tricks, and bookmarks on Snook.ca along with speaking at conferences around the world. Along with the fine folks at Sidebar Creative, Jonathan puts on workshops focused on front-end design and development. Welcome, Mr. Snook. Hello. So, uh, what part of Canada are you from?
3: Uh, I'm from Ottawa, which, you know, when I mention to Americans, they, they don't quite understand where it is, even though it's the nation's capital. Uh, we're actually over on the, the east side between Toronto and Montreal.
1: I always thought that was near Texas. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So,
2: apparently, you actually like CSS.
3: Yeah, what's wrong with you, man? <laughs> I, I do. I, I embrace everything uh, that I do, um, and CSS is just one more component in, in the development cycle that I have to know and understand and, and, and appreciate, and, and I enjoy it.
2: So, I, I guess you're one of these odd cats that you're, you're both, you consider yourself both a designer and a developer. Does one or the other come first?
3: Um, I, I would certainly consider myself more a developer than a designer. Um, I think that's where a lot of my background has been, uh, developing. Uh, starting off actually working on back-end stuff, working with um, classic ASP way back in the day, uh, and then moving into .NET, PHP, Java, um, so a whole bunch of different things. And then uh, eventually switching over to client-side and doing a lot of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And uh, and then when I went freelance, I uh, actually ended up having the opportunity to do a lot more design work.
2: And I don't know that we've ever done a show specifically focused on on cascading style sheets itself. Do you mind giving us a little history about why this exists and what it's about?
3: Well, if you think about uh, the history of the web uh, way back when, uh, you know, like 95, 96, when people were building websites and how they had to do that. Um, And it meant, you know, you you, you created your page, um, you set up your HTML, and then you wanted to style that in some way, um, meant using things like font tags, uh, which, you know, when you're trying to style a page, broken up into a number of different elements like headers and sidebars and and whatnot, uh, it meant a lot of extra code in order to make the changes that you you wanted to make. And if you thought, you know, you've finished your project, and Arial was really good at the beginning, but now you want to change everything to Georgia, well, now it meant having to go through every single file um, and making those edits. And so, uh, you know, some brilliant people uh, came up with the concept of, of cascading style sheets, which allowed you to specify uh, all your style information in one central place in your style sheets, uh, and that way you can make those changes there, and then they will get, get applied to all your documents throughout your entire site uh, in one Swift Go. Uh, now, mind you, things have evolved heavily since then, um, and CSS uh, is actually a lot more complex and, and uh, a lot more things to be concerned about when building a site.
2: Yeah, I've seen most people, I mean, heck, I come from the everything is a table world, which I understand, you know, years ago became very evil.
1: Right. Although, I, you know, I still like tables. I don't find them evil.
3: There, there are pros and cons to to tables, and it's a matter of understanding. And I, I think whether you used, uh table-based layouts or CSS-based layouts um, has a lot to understand with the pros and cons of what those um approaches require, and, you know, to me, a CSS-based approach is just a more flexible one. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of nooks and crannies within browsers that you have to understand where it's going to break here and there, uh, but thankfully, you know, certainly a lot of the the, the basic standards, um, so to give a little bit of background, CSS actually has three different levels now, um, CSS1, CSS2, and CSS3 um, is the, the current version that is um, going through um, the specification process. So, you know, you, we have these different levels of uh, specifications, each one kind of adding on uh, new functionality, and, and thankfully browsers have begun to solidify. Uh, you know, when you look at CSS1 and CSS2, the way browsers these days handle that is very consistent, uh, which is fantastic. And then on the, the leading edge, now, a lot of the CSS3 stuff that's coming out now, uh, we're still seeing a lot of disparity and uh, that will eventually, you know, merge together and, and create this consistent platform. Uh, but it's uh, it's still like the wild west. There's still a lot of things to understand um, and a lot of weird things to worry about. And so whether you choose table-based or CSS-based layouts, uh, it, it is really a matter of understanding, um, you know, the, the entire um implication uh, of that and it's it's the same thing with back-end development you know you can get by with some basic understanding and i'm sure that you know there's a lot of nooks and crannies once you understand the platform uh, a lot of benefits and performance and whatnot just understanding how to build that um and and that's fantastic
2: and i mean i think you sort of breeze past some stuff here but css2 its original specification had some serious problems and they eventually do a significant revision that became
3: 2.1. Yeah. I mean, the Yeah. Uh, we, we do have CSS 2.1. Um, and, and even with CSS 3, a lot of the, the specifications um, continue to go through uh, revisions. I, I don't think it's a, a case of uh, where things were um, drastically um, off. Uh, we, we just, we continue to see uh, an evolving landscape and, uh, and, and CSS being one of those things that, that continues to evolve. You know, there were things that was originally in the spec um, that actually got taken out um, and delayed. And a lot of that has to do with browser implementations. Um, you know, when we look at specifications, it's a little bit different in that um, on the front end, we have this, this document, you know, things like CSS2 and CSS3 that try to describe how browsers should behave. And... You know the the, the marketplace. Um, I mean, it's a little bit different than, than than I think service side development, where you have a a, a single platform that tends to run fairly consistently. Uh, specs, uh, when it comes to front end development specifically with CSS, um, are constantly in change. Um, you know that there, there are revisions, and we have to see browsers come to uh, solidify on a particular standard. So, in the case of CSS 2. You know, things had come out, some stuff got put in um, and became CSS 2.1, and and browsers really had to work together to create that consistent base. And we're seeing the same thing with CSS 3, where some parts of the spec are continually evolving and will continue to evolve until uh, multiple browsers actually solidify onto a particular standard, and that's a good thing. Uh, You know, we we have a very competitive marketplace where... um, You know, companies are trying to put out a lot more stuff, a lot more functionality. We're really seeing an explosion of of new things getting into browsers these days, which is fantastic. Uh, But we are going to see some time, um, and the specs are going to continue to evolve until they get to that point.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our very good friends at Telerik. If you're like me, you're using Facebook on a daily basis. You also might want more control on what you're seeing and how you're seeing it. If that's the case for you, try FaceDeck. FaceDeck is a Silverlight-based client application for Facebook, now supported by Telerik. The product was formerly known as Microsoft Client for Facebook Beta. The news about Telerik taking over the application from Microsoft was announced by Scott Guthrie at his Firestarter event keynote. FaceDeck has a nice, elegant black finish touch. You can upload photos with a simple drag-and-drop operation from your file system to your FaceDeck. You also have instant access to your webcam. What's more, FaceDeck will save you from notifications from unwanted applications. You only see what you care for. And, of course, it's free. Try it at facedeck.telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for supporting.net Rocks.
2: John, aren't you really just politely saying it's all
3: IE6's fault? just ask I'm with you I'm I'm with you I think people need to have a a sense of understanding of history I think it's easy enough to look back uh, 10 years and say wow you know IE6 got so much wrong Um, but it didn't actually they jumped
2: on the CSS bandwagon first when CSS had the problems
3: yes exactly and and, you know between IE4 and IE6 um, to me you know that time was in, in a sense, fantastic, in that you had this very capable browser that far exceeded anything else in the marketplace. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're seeing now was stuff that IE actually had the capability of ten years ago. Right. Uh, the, the problem was is that there, in a lot of the stuff they implemented, there was, the way they implemented it was difficult, um, if not impossible, for other browsers to implement in a similar way. Um, and as a result, um, you know, we began to see things evolve in such a way that IE6 quickly became outdated, um, and it was difficult for for Microsoft to switch that around and and get everything back on track. and it, And it's only really been within the last couple of years uh, with with IE8 and now with IE9 coming out where we really start to see them um, being on par, um, and in fact, some areas actually better than than in other browsers on the marketplace, which is fantastic.
2: I tend to agree, and I, I also say that there's also a group of folks out there that to this day build specifically for IE6 and don't want to do anything else? I think it's one of the reasons that IE6 has hung around as long as it has.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I will uh, go on the record as saying I have done the same thing. Um, I have built sites that were designed specifically for IE6. And, you know, I've had, uh, you know, past clients, It's it's been 10 years since I built these applications for them. Yeah. And they're like, w- we need to move off this. And you know, I, I think it's a-, a testament to my skill that it's lasted 10 years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's uh, it's an unfortunate situation because now it's, a, okay, well, how do we modify this in such a way that it'll work well um, in-, in newer browsers? And-, and it's, you know, as a developer, you can only really develop within what you know. And right. if IE6 is all you know, uh, then, you know, it- it's great to have that. Um, and we're starting to see some of that kind of mentality show up again now, where people are like, hey, you wanna, I want to build for the mobile platform. Well, you know, guess what? A lot of the mobile platform, the popular ones, you look at Apple, we look at Android, mm. they're all based on WebKit. Right. And so you start to see people implement WebKit-only effects and special approaches to things, and what's going to happen five years down the road when we have a, a much more uh, varied mobile market. Do we run into a situation where all these sites now, we look back and think, who would ever think to do that? Well, you know, we, we start to see history repeat itself, and it, right. it's just one of the things we have to be aware of.
2: Now you're implying that iPhone will be the next IE6. I, I mm. would do no such thing.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: but is, is there is there real incompatibility between WebKit and Internet Explorer?
3: It, it depends on what versions you're looking at and what part of the specification you're looking at. If you're looking at something like CSS2 2.1, then no, there, there is very little difference. Um, you know, with with IE8, um, Microsoft did a lot of work to bring up and really try to hit as much of the specification uh, as they could. And in fact, I would say that that their specification is um, on par, if not better, than a lot of the other browsers out there. Um, but then when you when you start to look at CSS3 specifications. Uh, CSS3 is a huge mass of of different specs. Um, you know, with CSS 2.1, it's one document. CSS3 is actually a bunch of different modules, and different modules are at different states.
1: Much like HTML5.
3: Exactly. Uh, very similar approach, because, you know, there's all this new functionality. It was hard to really keep it as one cohesive whole. We really needed to break it down into individual chunks. And so some chunks have reached a stage where we do see that consistency. So in IE9, for example... You know, things like the the backgrounds and borders uh, module uh, of the spec is at what's called the candidate recommendation. That means it's really not going to change much beyond this point. And as a result, we're now seeing all the browsers implement it and implement it in such a way that it's exactly the same uh, across browser, which is you know great. That's what we want.
2: I guess one of the challenges I run into with CSS is deciding what it should do and what it shouldn't do. You know, everything was fine until you guys started being able to do hover effects. I was good with doing that in JavaScript, and you stole it.
3: It, it, That's a tough line to walk to. Because we are continually going down that road where CSS is more and more often taking over roles that we used to do in JavaScript. Right. Uh, So, you know, we see things like, yeah, hover was probably the first one. Then we start seeing things like focus styles. So you know, you, you click onto an input, or you um, you focus onto an element, and and certain behavior happens, and and mm-hmm. you can do these kind of impressive things where you know we, you hover um, over an element that we can actually start showing and hiding sub menus. Um, right. You, know, w- w- you can do that with focus, and then you start getting into things like animation, uh, which is part of the CSS3 specification that they're they're still working towards, but that you could actually you know do start animating components on the page and and do all this interactive stuff without actually having a single line of JavaScript.
1: Yeah. Getting back to the whole tables thing we were talking about, one of the things that I noticed is that if you have everything in a big table, usually the whole site will not render until that entire table has been downloaded, whereas I think CSS doesn't take that approach. Is that true?
3: Um, Not exactly. Uh, What we have is HTML, when it gets rendered, has to understand where the beginning and ending of elements are. Um, And with a table, what we end up usually having, if the entire layout is table-based, is that you know you have a header, we probably have a main content area, and then we have a footer. Wouldn't it be great to be able to render some of that stuff out ahead of time? But if, um, if you have a table, then you, you started the opening table tag and we start loading in stuff, the browser doesn't know, you know how big the column should be, um, you know how wide everything should be. And so it actually waits until it has received everything about that table that it should know in order to render that stuff out. And if your entire page is based on a table, it's going to wait until it gets the entire table before rendering stuff yeah. out. There is ways to work around that. If you were working with a table-based layout, there is actually a CSS approach where you say table layout fixed, Um, which I believe actually Internet Explorer may have been one of the first browsers to implement that. And what this does is it tells the browser, hey, by the way, you're rendering a table, but we know this is going to be a fixed table. It's got fixed um, widths so that the moment you get your first row, you know exactly how big this should be. Once it has that information, then it knows it can start rendering out as it gets individual rows. So you can actually create that uh, same behavior using table-based layouts as you can with CSS. But it's the same thing with CSS. You, You have to have some definition of what size it is before it can begin rendering. And so what you can run into is a situation where it has to load up the entire page before it can render stuff because it doesn't know all the components of how wide things should be um, to avoid having to continually redraw every time a new element gets into the page. So
1: I was talking to Adam Kogan, who's a regional director from Australia, um, from SSW, And uh, he has a presentation that he does about user interface and usability um, on websites. And he he finds over and over again that customers get confused when links aren't underlined. Yes. And I know there's a real, you know, sort of artistic throwback to, you know, have links hover, color, change to make them, you know, links and to have a consistent color for links but not necessarily have them underlined. What's your take on that?
3: Uh, I, I tend to be a bit of um, uh, i want to say, UI purist. I believe that you know users get familiar with particular metaphors, a particular um, understanding of how the web works. And I think it's very important that we maintain that uh, when we build our interfaces. And so when we look at um, interactive components, a link is an interactive component how do we describe to the user that a link is something that they can actually interact with? Well, if they've been using the web for any period of time, they understand that links are underlined. They know that that is a component that they can interact with. If you remove that underline, then they lose that ability to understand that they can uh, click on it, that they can interact with it.
2: Right. It's interesting what metaphors are intrinsic to people's knowledge now. Yeah. That we forget.
3: Yeah, we we definitely see... um, you know, people get used to certain things. And, uh, you know, a lot of the work that I'm doing uh, even right now with, with Yahoo Mail um, and, and a lot of the other Yahoo products is we, we want to have all this rich desktop-like functionality. But it, it is still a web page. It's still a website. Right. Uh, how do we do some... How do we do things in a way that is going to be familiar to users expecting that it's still a web page? And it's a, it's a really tough... Line to to walk through. You know, we did a lot of work in taking a look at keyboard accessibility. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a big keyboard user. I love tabbing through and and understanding. You know, how I can use the the keyboard to get around. I just find it a faster interface for doing the stuff that I want to do. Yeah. But y- you get into these situations where it needs to behave like an application. And so, what do applications do? They use different keyboard functionality for getting around the page. And we had a lot of discussion and a lot of um, you know, testing to to see what would work and what didn't, and, and you know, it's, it's a lot to understand and a lot to, to to bring into application design.
2: Where do you fall on the whole HTML five is going to take over the app
3: space thing? It, we, we, it I think the HTML five I see as um, containing a number of components. That we used to have access to natively, and I, I think we, we see the pendulum swing back and forth, where we see a lot of native applications um, doing stuff, and then we kind of see that functionality get integrated into browser technology and, and stuff that we can take advantage of. And as a result of that, you know, we we see the web as this very ubiquitous platform, uh, much more so than uh, desktop or in any kind of native environment. You know, if you're building or the desktop, okay, you can build for Windows, or you can build for Mac OS X, or you can build for Linux. To build an application to run natively on all three different platforms is a lot of development overhead. But hey, guess what? We can build for the web and suddenly deploy to all platforms all at once. We're seeing the same thing with the mobile market where people have jumped in on native applications, either developing native iOS or native Android applications. Or PhoneGap or PhoneGap. Um, and, and so we start to see these technologies that try to bridge that gap. And, right. and, and PhoneGap phone gap is a really good example of that where uh, it tries to, to bridge the gap between being able to develop once for a single platform uh, or be able to d- develop once for multiple platforms. And, and phone gap is um, it's a great stopgap um, in being able to do that. Uh, but we are seeing more technologies, more access to native hardware, and as a result of that, we're seeing web applications being just as powerful as native applications, and I think that's fantastic.
2: Well, I, I mean, my, one of my concerns there is people seem to be willing to pay for native apps, even if it's only a dollar, but they're just not willing to pay for web apps.
3: It It's always, I think, the, uh, the, the monetization of applications in general is definitely a concern, and I think One of the reasons why the App Store has done very well is because it streamlines the payment process and does it in such a way that, you know, if you've only got $10, you can spread that over five different applications. The ability to do that uh, for a web app isn't as, it's not as cost-effective because you have a lot of uh, overhead with merchant systems. So, you know, if I'm doing something like PayPal or if I'm doing... Um, you know, Visa or MasterCard, that kind of merchant overhead doesn't make a $1 payment a profitable situation. Right. And, and that's really where the, the headache comes in. Is If you can find somebody that can uh, streamline the mobile process or the payment process for mobile applications, we're going to see, uh, I think, a huge uh, takeoff in that market.
2: Uh, and I'm excited that the prospect, I just think it's, a you know, I'm the side effect of being old school. Is remembering how many times we've been punished for trying to build on the uniform platform rather than take advantage of the hardware that we're on. So I tend to, you know, history has taught me native apps win.
3: They they, they can. Um, I, I think in the beginning, yes, native apps win, and then we we are we continually gradually see this this shift to the web. Um, I, I think we we saw that a lot with a lot of desktop applications moving to web applications on the desktop we're going to continue to see the same thing on the mobile platform where applications that were built natively you know the more that functionality it becomes available to us on the web level we're going to continue to see that migration uh, just because we have that opportunity to to build once and run everywhere and I know there are still limitations in, in doing that uh, and that's uh, one of the biggest limitations is interface design how do you build something that feels native that feels part of the environment that you're running it in, but do so in a way that's ubiquitous because every platform is different.
2: Well, and I I feel like we've walked all the way back to the whole links need to be underlined thing, because if I'm going to build an app that's technically built with web, but I want it to feel like a native app, I shouldn't underline my links.
3: But then you, you run into a different metaphor, right? Where we start to see, you know, within a desktop application, you wouldn't see a block of text with something embedded within there just being a different color. You would use something like a button, you would have some sort of interface metaphor that people understand. Uh, and so if you were looking to make a web app feel more like a native application, it may not be a link, but you know what? It may be a button. And that yes. may be your, your interface approach to solve that problem. Well, and,
2: and you think about how a button behavior works, it typically you know, doesn't load another page. It's, it changes the dialogue in some way. I mean, I guess you've got to complete the metaphor if you're going to start down that path.
3: You know, we, we start to see a lot of uh, pros and cons to different situations and, you know, how do we deal with dialogues and how do we deal right. with all these different things? Um, and and it's, it's, it's difficult, you know, and we start to see roadblocks in, in different approaches. You know, on a desktop application, we're used to seeing things like modal dialogues. On the web, you know, oddly enough, Internet Explorer actually had the concept of modal dialogs. You yes. actually instantiate a modal dialogue, but no other browser could do that. And then you started to see pop-up blockers So you couldn't even create another window. Uh, It was just this hurdle that we had to get over. And so we started seeing these in-window interface models where, okay, you know, I want to do a dialog, but it's not actually going to be a window, Chrome. uh, You know, you you are not going to have those kind of window controls that people are familiar with. We're going to have to recreate that and try to create this dialog that still looks like a dialog, but still feels like a dialog. Well, that's because the bulk
2: of the dialogs that ever popped up told me I was the one millionth visitor to the website. (laughs) Click here for my prize. Yes.
1: At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over eleven hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight Four, or fourteen hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint Two Thousand Ten. Each for only six ninety five. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net.
2: I'm not a designer. I don't have that design sensibility. I know when I see something I really like, and I don't necessarily know why, but uh, it's interesting, I'm and I'm enthralled with stuff like CSS Zen Garden. I just am stunned at the talent there that creates this diversity.
1: Yeah, I've ripped off a couple style sheets from there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it... It also concerns me this idea that style is something that can be added at the end,
3: and, and it can't. It, it, it's you know when we start looking at um, how we design uh, our application, the, the way we approach things stylistically uh, has to be thought of at the beginning. Um, it can't be just tacked on at the end. You know, there's so many layers when it comes to application development from the CSS level, from the HTML level, from the JavaScript level. From the the end integration level, how do we scale this? How do we deploy this? Um, you know, all these things have to be considered, and it, it's not something that you can just tack on to the end. You know, sure we can change a button style, sure we can change a color, um, and if that was all we had to worry about, that'd be fine. Uh, but when it comes to application design and development, there's just so many different pieces involved that you know you can't just add a style sheet onto the end.
2: Are we at the point where this? The style metaphors around the web are going to be able to support uh, touch and gesture well?
3: Yes. When you start looking at that from a CSS level, um, I think that's going to be less of a concern. Uh, what we start to then start looking at is uh, JavaScript APIs and how do we integrate those. Um, I think what we, we're we going to see is uh, you know how we design things visually to make the interactions obvious. That you know, How do people understand that they can interact with this with their fingers, that they can slide components, that they can move things around? And I think we're still seeing an evolution in a lot of those uh, interface approaches. Uh, I think on you know, iOS, Apple had a lot of default approaches to things, and then we saw applications like uh, Twitter uh, for the iPad where we start to see this metaphor where you pull down Uh, and it does a refresh. This is a new metaphor that, you know, a developer had come up with and and integrated into his application. And as a result of that, we're starting to see that in more and more applications. And we continue to see this evolution of how do we interact with a touch-based device, and it's it's still very early on. At a CSS level, I I don't think that there is anything inherent to the technology. I don't think there's anything in CSS that is going to make that easier or harder. Um, it's all, I think, more on the design level as to how do we design things in such a way that people understand that they can interact with them.
1: Well, um, some of the tools that CSS people use are way different from, you know, Visual Studio that most of our listeners are used to. Are there any really good CSS designers and and tools out there that everybody's using that uh, might be approachable or accessible to Visual Studio developers?
3: That's uh, that's a very interesting question. I think you know when I I look at what I use um, and what um, a lot of the people that I know use, we still use text editors. Um, You know, the the people that um, I know tend to come from a very handcrafted approach to uh, development, where um, there's a lot of um, personality that needs to go into how we code uh, and. Uh, it, it's not so much about a lot of pre-built components and, and autocomplete and stuff like that where uh, we have this sort of modular approach. Uh, CSS is still very, um, for lack of a better word, ephemeral. That There is so much to understand that I, I would believe at this point it would actually be difficult for a desktop application to, to really understand all the different components that go into to creating um, a good site at a CSS level, you know, there's a lot of performance things that need to be considered. Um, There's a lot of different design approaches that can be taken, and it's a case of each approach that you take is going to be um, specific to the problem you're trying to solve, Uh, and I don't know if there is a generic way to do that.
1: So are there any good text editors that have at least, uh, you know, statement completion or IntelliSense for CSS? I mean, yes, Visual Studio does, you know. Yeah, and the CSS editor in Visual Studio is pretty good.
3: You know, yeah, at a text level. The other application that comes to mind, um, and you know, every time I mention this, people kind of groan. But Dreamweaver. Oh, okay. Really,
2: it's still going
3: on. <laughs> <laughs> is that movie still playing? Yeah, and I, I think I would be remiss. Uh, Expression Web. Expression Web is still around, right? Yes.
2: Yeah, both guys really like it. Yeah.
3: <laughs> One of my early applications that I used was Dreamweaver, and uh, I, I've actually always enjoyed Dreamweaver as an application. I do find it a, a little heavy when it comes to CSS um, in that it, it's a it's a big program, uh, but it does have a lot of power, and there's a lot of great templates um, that come with it that can help you with uh, starting um, a lot of basic components. Now, if you start looking at .NET development and, and the approaches there, then it's a matter of how do you handle those environments and um, something like trying to integrate Dreamweaver into that process might be a little bit more difficult. Uh, you know, if you're you creating a, um, a particular module and it needs to output its HTML and CSS, depending on how much of the, let's say, pre-built .NET d- components, you know, what IDs is it outputting? Is that going to be predictable um, and, and be able to rely on those when you approach your styling? Um, and I, I would say Visual Studio would probably be the best application yeah, okay. for dealing with that.
2: I guess the main thing you're looking for is a way to see how style changes affect your page sort of dynamically. We, we just take, as developers, we take this visual rendering of our forms, of our dialogues in real time for granted, but it's
3: just not that easy with web. Yeah, if we, uh, when it comes to debugging environments, we've thankfully been seeing um, a huge shift in the way browsers handle it. I mean, way back when, uh, you know, how did you handle JavaScript development? You, you threw in alerts. You know, how did you handle CSS? Well, you changed the value, you refreshed the page. Uh, and what we're actually seeing now is, is that um, as a result of Firebug, um, which is a, an add-on for Firefox, we're starting to see this huge evolution where Chrome and Safari now have a built-in web inspector. Uh, IE8 and IE9 have a built-in uh, developer toolbar. These tools really help us because we can interact, we can make changes to the page, and see those changes reflected immediately and then take those changes and actually integrate them back into um, our actual CSS file.
1: Interesting. So, um, tell me, what are some of the, the coolest? See, uh, C- I know CSS Zen Garden is out there, but are, do you have any secret sauce uh, websites that you go to for CSS ideas? The
3: oddly enough, Twitter um, is really. Is, <laughs> the, the reason is is because the, the the people that I follow, um, there's a lot of people doing some really great demos. Um, uh, the, the folks at Opera um, have their developer blog, and they post a bunch of stuff there. Um, uh, David Desandro um, is a developer who does a lot of great CSS demos, uh, and as a result, you know, I just I, I try to soak up what the community puts out there. And a lot of times, it's really small examples where they're they're focusing on one specific thing. Um, another developer, uh, Leah Veru um, from Greece, um, does some really good stuff, and what'll happen is. You know, because of this stuff, this this marketplace is evolving so quickly. Uh, you know, a new browser uh, will come out with a particular feature, and so somebody will create a test page to actually demonstrate that functionality. And there isn't a a central place where you really see all that boiled down uh, into one great resource. It's really at this point kind of spread out, and it's relying on the community to to learn and and absorb all that information.
2: It's kind of hard to find these things.
3: And not only hard to find, but hard to understand, I would imagine, for somebody coming in and trying to pick this stuff up from the beginning to understand what's good information and what's bad information, what what is applicable now um, and, and what isn't, because things change and how do we decide how do we approach things. And, and as great as CSS Zen Garden is it, is, it was a way of demonstrating that CSS was a valid approach to development. and yeah, It's, I think it it's was a very help. early
2: proof, isn't it?
3: Yes. And I think it did a great job at that. It was, you know, if you were trying to sell that concept to your boss, CSS Garden was a fantastic way to do that. Yeah. And, and as a result of that, you know, we have that kind of flexibility. Uh, again, with a lot of the work um, that we're doing here at Yahoo, there's, you know, the situation where it's like, okay, we have different layouts. How do we approach these different layouts? Well, guess what? We have exactly the same HTML base we can just layer in different CSS in order to create these different layouts. And that gives us a lot of flexibility. Um, But we didn't have to sell that. You know, that was sort of a given. Okay, well, we know that this is possible. It's been possible for 10 years. It's just a matter of getting that stuff implemented. Now that we're starting to see uh, the the market really change again, where we're seeing all these new browsers come out. You know, we're seeing IE9, um, Chrome, I think they're up to 11 now, which is kind of crazy. You know, we, we see Firefox 4 coming out. They're putting in a lot of new functionality and a lot of new um, cool CSS3 features, but it's stuff that hasn't been tested. We haven't seen where the edge cases are. We haven't seen what, what are the best ways to implement that. And as a result, we haven't really seen all the best approaches boiled down into this is the way you should do it.
1: Well, Jonathan, I think that's where we're going to have to leave it. I'm afraid we're running out of time, but I'd like to thank you for being with us for this hour. Thank you very much. All right. And we'll see you next time, dear listener, on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services at www.dotnetrocks.com.